I'm very humbled to present two Camberwell legends who have six Olympic Games and over 500 Australian caps between them. Welcome to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. This week, we're excited to bring you David Wansborough speaking with Jay Stacey. All right, well, it's my great uh, privilege tonight to welcome to our third Camberwell podcast um, the great Jay Stacey, a, uh, one of Australia's greatest ever hockey players, one of Camberwell's greatest ever players, and um, so much to talk about with Jay tonight. We're going to talk a bit about his uh, his career, um, his incredible record. We're going to pick his brains around his current role, what he does coaching-wise at the moment. Um, we're also going to look uh, back to his early days, how he started the game, and, of course, we'll touch on his uh, Australian representation, some of the memories there, and uh, we'll also dig a bit deeper into his coaching, what he's actually coaching young players and things that we could might we might be able to draw on as players ourselves. So really looking forward to tonight's chat. Uh, but first of all, welcome, Jay, to uh, to the podcast tonight. Thanks, Wani. It's uh, really, really a uh, privilege and, and a great honour to be talking to you, actually, um, on this podcast. Obviously, a significant part of my journey and my hockey was at Campbellwell, so I'm really, really pleased to uh, join you. Fantastic. Well, let's just get your stats right first because I wouldn't do it justice. I um, was shared a lot of it with you, but the when I do hear them, it always just blows me away. But let's go through your, your major stats and uh, you don't get a chance to tell anybody this, so don't be shy. Let's go through them. Yeah, well, I, I'm not really one for, you know, for talking about these, but seeing you've asked, um, uh, I played... Uh, uh, I played 321 games for the for the country and scored 160 goals. Um, uh, I, I went to 14 Champions Trophies, three World Cups, four Olympic Games, uh, Commonwealth Games, a Junior World Cup, and um, we were successful through uh, some of those tournaments, um, winning a Commonwealth gold medal. Obviously. Uh, Together we lost the uh, the final in the '92 Olympics. Um, um, got a silver medal there and a couple of bronze medals from the other from the other Olympics as well. So, yeah, it's been a it's been a really long journey and a, and a thoroughly enjoyed the the whole lot of it, the ups and the downs of uh, right through my career. Yeah, well, one thing. Look, it is fantastic when you hear those stats. They're quite remarkable. There wouldn't be many better in the country, and uh, in fact, there's probably only one or two players now in Dwyer and Oppington that would have more games, but. Uh, to go to four Olympics, to play 14 Champions Trophies. This is all the top level. This is all when Australia was winning a lot. Um, yeah, it's quite quite a fantastic record, one to be proud of. I think the other part of it is the stats don't tell all the stories, and you certainly had yeah an amazing journey uh, alongside watching a lot of it. You um, certainly rode the highs and the lows, and you had a great time, and you certainly made great friends. You're a character that people loved playing with, and I think crowds loved. Um, they were drawn to you, and most people would. No, of you, um, as hockey players aren't that well known, that you had the personality and the, and the, um, the presence that really uh, made you a, a big character in the game in Australia and um, and around the world. But let's um, let's quickly start off and have a look at how you started and got into the game because there's a boy from young boy from Reservoir. Um, I remember you a couple of years younger, and there was this big redheaded lad out at Reservoir. Um, you know, probably not the uh, what you'd call the ideal place to to grow up for, for hockey when you look at say. Young kids that come down to Camberwell or in Holland on a Saturday morning, so you had to come through a you know the muddy old grass grounds out at Reservoir there, and then to be on strutting the world stage with the record you've got, there must be a you know an interesting tale behind that. How that happened? 
Yeah, well, it is, a, it is an interesting journey. I, I um, uh, The president of the local club was a teacher at our uh, local primary school. My brother took up the sport. I went along to watch him and immediately fell in love with the sport. I, I played the next season in the under-8s um, when I was five and spent all of my time at Reservoir. It was really a, a football you would have been uh, you would have been bigger than most of the under eights when you were five. Didn't you? you would have been bigger yeah. than that. <laughs> well, I probably thought it, but I don't think I was. But I was a bit uh, I was a bit short and round back in those days. So, but yeah, it was, it was a, really a football heartland out that way in the old zoning system, and um, one one main road sort of divided the two zones of Carlton and Collingwood. All my mates played footy and things like that. But um, yeah, once I sort of started playing hockey, there was really no really no turning back from that point. And I spent all my junior days uh, at the at the club. Um, we didn't have that many teams, um, but it come to a point really when I started playing senior hockey and junior hockey uh, at the same time, as many kids do even today, that I just sort of come to a point where uh, the coaching sort of level at Reservoir was, wasn't really going to take me where I really had a passion to go, and that was to play for Australia. And um our coach of the under-17s at the time was Brad Laurie and he was playing uh, State League 1 at Doncaster um, and, I, and I was playing uh, under-17s and second grade at Reservoir. So um, I was offered an opportunity to, to go to Doncaster to play senior hockey but I always remained, uh, remained in my underage team at Reservoir um, and played throughout and then, uh, then went to Doncaster uh, for a couple of years seeking better coaching and that was Rick Purser and I played, played the remainder of 1984 in State League One. Um, we were relegated that year at Doncaster. Uh, and then um, the next year uh, we were in State League Two. We won the premiership that year to, to be promoted back to State League One. And that brings along 1986. And that's that was my when I made my move. Uh, Rick Purser was the USA national coach at the time. And he was going back to the US. So I was really searching for further and a higher level coaching um, and Camberwell um, with the sort of staff started playing which they had and coaching staff I thought that would be uh, somewhere where I would look at I ended up in Camberwell in 1980. Well that was a, uh, a huge move though to um, to do that before I go into that that change of what it was like you know a couple of key points there that you mentioned Carton O'Connor well you had a um, uh, you can explain to me the family relative related uncle that in Bert Deacon, who was a Carlton Brownlow medalist, so he had a connection there. Could easily have been a footy player by your by your bill. So it's quite remarkable as you hear this that there's a young lad out of Reservoir um, that ends up coming across to Camberwell and going on to Australian representation. But also Rick Purser, who was a one of the um, legends of the Camberwell Hockey Club. So he actually went out to uh, Greensboro and helped that club, and there he ends up coaching you at uh, Doncaster. But um, I think the interesting part, um, came to Camberwell, 16, 17-year-old, you already been to Doncaster. That must have been a, a brave move. Tell us, what are your memories of when you walked into, um, into Matlock Park as a sort of 16, 17-year-old? Wireless were playing at Reservoir, um, another sort of a long-time sort of mentor and coach through my junior days, uh, Bill Fuller. We sometimes used to go and watch the State League One team of Camberwell train on a Thursday night, and that was some of our some of our education so we'd miss the actual training or the pie night or whatever it might be and we'd we'd ferry um ferry over to Matlock to either watch a game or to or to watch a training session which was which was funny in terms that I'd end up going back to that club um many years later to uh to start off my own sort of senior career but it was a it was a challenging time I knew that I you know I wanted to be a sponge I wanted to get better 
and I knew that I'd have to challenge myself and I, I spoke to some people at Camberwell, uh, Wayne Thornton was one of them and some of the other guys around the place, Greg Reed, and those types of guys. Um, but I went down and had a chat to Don Argus, who was the coach at the time, um, and we had a brief chat about, you know, what sort of my opportunities would be and things like that. And he said that you need to make your own opportunities and um, you're more than welcome to come down, but there's no promises here and you'll, yeah, you'll have to uh, have to find your own way. I really appreciated that honest um, honest assessment of where I was at and I really sort of thrived on that challenge and I thought there's a lot of good players here but if I'm going to make it then I really want to take this challenge on and I put in a clearance at Doncaster and went to Camberwell and um, I managed to play some uh, some practice games and things and, and done a pre-season at the Waddle Park Hill and all those types of things from back in those days. Ended up getting a starting, starting spot at uh, in the midfield for Camberwell State League One and yeah, I was really, really thrilled to do that. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, a whole lot of interesting points out of that. But the Don Argus one about, you know, a young player coming along as a talented state player uh, and for him to sort of say, well, yep, we'd love to have you, but you're going to have to earn your spot. You know, in contrast today, I must say, it, it disappoints me often when I see young players change clubs either because of themselves or parents um, when a kid hasn't got a, a game straight away or guaranteed a spot and they, they feel like they're owed one. I think that's... Um, that Argus trait and, and any of the old-fashioned um, coaches that here, I think there's still a lot to say for that. It teaches resilience and uh, you've got to learn things. And I think um, that was certainly, you know, you could see why culturally that team under Argus's leadership certainly knew uh, the right way to go about things and it paid off uh, in spades. Now, you, you came to the 86 team. That obviously was a, was a team full of characters and um, I think you had some immediate success in that 86 year. Yeah, we did. Tell us some of the what that year was like. I had a very good year with Wally and with Greg Reed playing on the right-hand side. Brian Ambrosius was playing on the right wing at those times and I had a really good connection with those sort of players around me. But really, um, we had some very young players in that group, but some also some older, more experienced one, John Darcy Evans those and, and Duck in the net, some of their experience as well. So not only sort of the coaching staff were providing you know, education and, and, and coaching, but also on the field, in training sessions, but also they were, there was a, always a reminder to enjoy yourself uh, away from the game as well. And um, they did that very well as uh, also. Now, you told me the story, the pitch that year was uh, the odd car, the old yeah. red cinders, which some people listening to this wouldn't remember, but the story you tell where the, the new synthetic pitch was going down, so you had to train elsewhere. Exactly right. Um, obviously, there's, there's just the one pitch there. It was the old, uh, the old Antikar service. The club had um, invested in getting the, you know, the first synthetic pitch down. So we were relocated to Albert Park Lake uh, in the middle of winter. You can imagine how good that was. The breeze blowing off the lake, and the warm-up session was just one lap around the lake. That's uh, that's five kilometres. So everyone was pretty fit, and then. Most of the sessions were very um, always based around sort of competitiveness and connecting with players and that type of stuff. So um, once all the hard work was done, you know, after training, it was a it was a social environment, and I think that really led to a great bond th- with that team for many many years in many battles with our sort of arch rival Waverley at those times. But we were successful through that period, and I, I think that move actually. Um, inadvertently sort of helped the team bond together because we're all sort of training 
in foreign place and we're training on buffalo grass and and then playing on different services on the weekend. So, but I, I really think that away from sort of the club and going into a social thing afterwards really, um, really made that team stick together. Yeah, it is interesting because you contrast these days, we have such structured sport, whether it's hockey or other sports and everything is uh, generally good facilities. You think back to some of those old days, we sound very old now, but yeah, the, the roughness of it and the way you had to improvise and innovate um, in the end created some interesting experiences. I guess, um, you know, back to Don Argus as coach, he, uh, he had an incredible influence on so many people in the time he was there and still gets down to the club. But, uh, you know, I guess what he managed to do with a club team where you had Australian players, promising young stars, and you had older guys there who their life was all based around one game a week and different, I guess, different motivations, potentially different attitudes and, and different approaches to the game. His ability to, to meld a unit, um, to sort of cater for everybody's differences was quite unique in all the coaches I had. I think I only had one or two others that could do it as well as him. He didn't bother probably trying to teach uh, yourself and other Australian players, perhaps like myself at the time, about how to hit a hockey ball. It was about what were the important basics and um, competitiveness, as you say. Clearly, one day when we came back from overseas, I think we may have just won a Champions Trophy in Holland, and the next week we were excited to come back to Matlock to play. We, You and I didn't manage to get off the bench in the first half. Do you remember that day? I do indeed, and um, I think I warmed up quite a few times. And I argued, "Okay, sit down, fella. Sit down, young fella. You might get a turn or something to that effect." So, um, yeah, I, I think he was really good. He he managed you in a way that you would that would bring the best out in you. And if you brought the best out in you, um, he allowed you to sort of explore and and play the position how you wanted to. But but he was managing that so that you would play in a way that he wanted you to play. And once he had sort of 10, 12, 14 people playing with that mindset, I think the, the team was always bound for success. Yeah, no, look, um, it was fantastic. I think we all still, we gradually understood it. We might not always at the time, but we learnt lots without even knowing it sometimes. You obviously then accelerated quickly across to Perth. Um, you know, started to star at the club level very quickly, your physical capacity and, and, and then, you know, your mental strength to be able to cope with most anything thrown at you. Uh, you identified pretty quickly and he went across to the AIS and and then virtually into the Australian team. So we, we jumped from sort of 86. All of a sudden, uh, if it's right, you land in the Seoul Olympics in 1988, which when you think at the moment, all these kids training and the programs, was that quite an incredible, when you look back at it, the fact that you one minute were playing Premier League, Premiership in 86 in Camberwell and 88, you, you, you get to Seoul. Tell us that story. Yeah, well, that it did happen quickly. Um, 1986 was also my first uh, senior nationals in Darwin. And then I was sort of finding my way at a state level, sort of not playing full games, but certainly participating in games um, and slowly being, you know, introduced to that level. 87 was a bit uh, a bit better and, uh, and I had a bit more time on the pitch. Also, that was the first year that um, after 86, I was, involved, you know, sort of told to apply for the Institute of Sport. 87, the January of 87, I went to uh, went to Perth and played at the Nationals that year. And then I was selected in the National Squad in 87 with a fairly consistent sort of Nationals performance without being brilliant. And I was totally thrilled. It was my, you know, lifelong goal and ambition to play for the for the. Um, for the national team. Middle of the year, sort of out of, sort of not really unexpected, really, Rick Charlesworth withdrew from the um, Champions Trophy in 1987 in uh, in Amstelveen in Amsterdam. 
and I was his replacement. He, he withdrew from the team because of the election. You know, that was when I got my first trip and uh, that's when I made debut at the Champions Trophy in 1987 against Argentina. And then uh, 88, um, there's an injury before the games, is that right? Yeah, that's another little story in itself. I was more than more than thrilled to be sort of getting a chance and making debut and deep down knowing that I wasn't at the level to go to an Olympic Games at you know, at this point in time. I was really thrilled to be doing Olympic preparation and, you know, to see what it was all about and training with the best players in the land and all of those types of things and and I was going pretty well. I was fit and um, uh, and strong, and you know, f- you know, I'm, I'm a bigger type of bigger type of lad at, at those times. You know, sort of my my body was a bit bit more mature than than your normal sort of eighteen or nineteen year old. So I could handle the physical demands of it. Yeah, and I was um, lucky enough, um, well, unlucky for first injury uh, in the Olympic team was Dean Evans. He went out, and Michael York was called in. And then the second injury was uh, Peter Hazelhurst uh, injured his hamstring, and uh, fortunately, I was called into the the Olympic team very, very shortly. I can't even remember the time, but I'm talking sort of two weeks before the game or three weeks before the Olympic Games departure. Uh, and it was, you know, it was a whirlwind moment, but um, uh, yeah, one I'll never forget. So I went to Seoul. With your good self, um, and the team obviously was a little bit depleted with two young guys coming in, but still a very, very, very good hockey team. And as it turned out, it was a, a, a bit uh, disappointing result in the end, coming fourth. Yeah, well, it's still uh, still very hard one. Every Olympics has got its own story, but uh, we lost the semi final to Great Britain three two, having beaten them, I think, eleven of the previous twelve meetings. So it's um, as many times it's proven, it's all about getting it right in the Olympic uh, Olympic finals. Now, so from there we go, jump ahead to Barcelona. That was one, obviously, um, we were both out and got very close and, and, and got to the final to go down to the Germans. How do you think about that as you reflect back on that result? Um, people, when I when they ask me, they think, you know, there must be huge disappointment. And in the end, in your own mind, you have to reconcile things. How, how do you um, look back at that one? Um, before I get to there, do you mind if I touch on a point just for any young young Camberwell players out there sort of with this in mind and this journey in mind. After the 88 Olympics, where I was in the team, a new coach took over the national team. In 1989, I was still based in Perth at the AIS and training well and not really much had changed in my hockey life. In my personal life with parents separating and things like that, it was a little bit different. But in 89, I I didn't play for Australia the whole year. I was outside of the. I was in the squad, but sort of fair long, fairly long way down the squad. So I didn't play at all in 1989, and I just thought I'd mention that because young players out there think that you have to have it here and now, and if you don't get it when you think you should get your opportunity, then unfortunately today some people think that that's the end of their journey. Being an international player and being selected. Um, and trying to have a career at that level is just such a long, long journey, and there's so many hiccups and so many little bumps along the way that you have to learn from and build from. So I just think that some young guys out there or girls think that if you get in the Australian team one one year, it doesn't mean that, you, that you're going to remain in that team. You have to continue to set goals, um, have objectives along the way, and if there's a setback, then you need to you know review that, reassess, and then focus on the areas you need to get better at. 
then you're able to you may be able to have a long a long career in the national team but from yeah as you say from there I, I got back in the national senior team in in the for the World Cup in February 1990 and I remained in the team from that point and it was a and it was a hard fight to get back in there but it was a challenge that I really was strongly passionate about I really wanted to play for Australia and I was prepared to do anything to to make that happen again which brings me to uh, the 1990 World Cup in Pakistan where it was fantastic and then obviously uh, 91 and then all preparation leading into Barcelona which I felt more because I'd trained there, I'd been in the squad for you know for three years leading into Barcelona. I felt far more part of the uh, part of that journey, part of that Olympic team, and I felt that I could have more influence than I did the previous Olympics, being a youngster coming in at the last minute. So '92 was, yeah, I, I thought we were very well prepared. I thought we had a good young team, possibly a little bit less experienced than some of the the senior European teams, but all the same, I thought we had a really, really good chance of uh, doing something special there, which we did, um, and we played some really good hockey, and we managed to knock over Holland in the semi-final uh, to reach uh, our Olympic final, and um, unfortunately, I think that that experience in, of the Germans in that Olympic final in Barcelona um, come to fruition, and I thought that was probably the difference on the night. We probably didn't play our best hockey. We were missing our best striker, Mark Hagar, who went out uh, injured a couple of days prior to the games with a stress fracture of the foot. That's not an excuse. That's just a reality that we would have been a better team with him in the team. But we made the final, and, and unfortunately, we conceded a goal early, and to doing that against Germany you know, plays into their hands, and unfortunately, we couldn't rein it back in and lost 2-1. But um, I'm, when you look back on it now, I'm really proud of that effort and that group of players, and I'm still close to a lot of those guys in the team um, from from that particular Olympic uh, campaign, but uh, obviously others, but that one was pretty special. Losing was disappointing, but all the same, it was a tremendous effort by uh, by that group for the, for the lead-up and that Olympic campaign. I guess one of the observations about Germany is they don't often let you play to the best of your ability sometimes. They don't give you any easy hits and um, it was always going to be tight. Quite a, a bit of an off, off uh, take to that story, I guess, is that you may remember every morning in that village, um, you know, which had 20,000 athletes, we'd go for a run and uh, invariably we would bump into the German team jogging at 7 or 8 in the morning doing their loosening up and stretching and we'd eye each other off knowing full well that um, you know, it would be a chance to meet two weeks later. That's one of the things about hockey at the Olympics. You start the day after the opening ceremony and um, and you finish the day before the closing, which is, you know, an interesting point on on that. I might just get your view on that, Jay. It's different to any other event. You've got to watch all the other events and the medal presentations and very hard for the mind not to wander and dream about what might be and keep yourself at the task. Is that um, something you found always a challenge in the excitement of being in the village? It is a challenge, but I think the staff around us do a pretty good job trying to prepare us for that. You can't you know, you can't simulate that at home, but certainly trying to prepare for it. I think you're far better prepared for that if you'd been to an Olympics before. For first-time Olympians, I think it's uh, I think it's difficult. But in and around the village, it um, you, your mind does wander a little bit. You know, as you say, with you know swimming or athlete athletics people coming in the medals and showing you their medal and their their jobs done and they've you know been successful and they're you know. Their campaign is, um, has paid dividends, um, but we're still uh, play five games and, 
and try and qualify for the finals, knowing that the competition's really stiff, and then getting to the finals and trying to be at your best in those big games. That's the real the real key to being successful at those uh, those major tournaments and trying to build your form through those preliminary rounds to make sure that you're at your best um, in the finals and fresh uh, mentally and physically. That's a good segue to the Sydney Olympics 2000, your fourth Olympics, obviously the excitement of the home Olympics. Um, the build-up would have been huge, even being there, lots of friends and relatives. How did you handle that distraction whilst at the same time you're really there as an Australian hockey player, desperate to win a gold medal? As I recall, you know, the stats, I might be slightly out here, but the last nine Olympics, uh, 124 countries play hockey in the men's side, 12 get to go to the Olympics, and the last nine Olympics, Australia's made the last four and yet they've won one gold medal. So Sydney was another chance. We got very close. How did you look back at uh, the Sydney Olympics? The Sydney Olympics was um, was really good. I, I, I think I, I suppose I had a bit of an, an advantage in some ways that I'd been to three previous to that, and I, I knew what to expect. I, I didn't really have sort of the FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out of what else was going on around the Olympics village and in Sydney and all those types of things. Um, so I was, I was able to stay pretty focused on on what I was doing. In the back of my mind, and also at, at my age, I was 32 then, or turning 32, that could well be my, well, it was going to be my last Olympic Games. So I was really focused with the team that we had, with the coaching staff that we had and the, and the game styles and our preparation years and games uh, all led to a good performance in Sydney. I felt that we didn't play our best matches or our best hockey early on, but I wasn't really, we were getting results, but without playing brilliantly. Um, and I was happy with that, knowing that we're sort of, we were building something for the big games. It was a real twist of events towards the end of the tournament because all along we thought that we would probably be playing Germany because Pakistan had beaten Holland. And you'll have, you know, listeners were, you know, can go back through the stats and have a look at those sort of games. But Germany were playing Great Britain and they hadn't beaten them for I don't know how long. But by Pakistan beating Holland, they were out of the tournament as long as Germany beat Great Britain. And I thought that was sort of a that was the lay down was there for that to happen based on history. But as it turns out, uh, Great Britain scored two penalty corners, beat Germany. Suddenly Germany were out of the tournament. Then Holland were back into the tournament with a second life. And then we had to meet them in the semi-final. They're uncontrollables, of course, but certainly there was a real twist at the end of the tournament there. And we had to get ready and get prepared to play Holland, who had been one of our main sort of rivals in the, in the lead up to the Sydney Games. And there was a talk that Holland had actually uh, got the slabs of beer in the village and were starting to, to check out. They'd, uh, they'd given up as well. So quite a remarkable with that story is completely true. I'm not sure that's what I did here. Um, so your career, incredible for Olympics and, and yeah, always in the mix for finals and put yourself on the line so many times. You finished that. Logically, yeah, a lot of players had moved into the coaching uh, world. There were plenty of jobs around or seemingly for players with your record, but it wasn't that straightforward, was it? Even though you went on now, if you look back and you've coached in India, uh, you've coached the Hawthorne women to great success, you're coaching Victoria, but it wasn't a lay down the zero, was it? Or, or you didn't find it as easy as you as uh, you expected? You know, I find that, you know, if, you, if you've been an elite athlete or a high performance athlete in any sort of discipline for, you know, 14, 15 years, the easy thing to do would just think that you would just go straight into coaching. I spent after my international career, after Sydney, I spent another five years in Holland, in Eindhoven, uh, at uh, Aranya Zwart, which is now called Aranya Rude, orange black in English and orange red in English. I spent some time there, 
and I ended up being captain of the club. That wasn't just because you had red hair. No. Well, well, it could have been. I didn't ask. I was, I'd like to think that I had some uh, inbuilt leadership skills and I was the oldest. So, yeah, so I spent some time over there and part of my role there was uh, to be a coach of the, the club's hockey academy. So I coached, I coached that academy on, a, on, on an off night from our training nights. Uh, that was once a week. And that was also selecting some talented from all the smaller clubs around the Eindhoven Centre. There's all small little villages that have hockey hockey clubs so the talents from those little clubs would be feeder clubs into um around your as well so i was part of this sort of identification part of it as well as as the coach of it um, we used to have sort of 20 20 girls and 20 guys and i used to coach both of them on, uh, on on different nights which was really my first sort of step into i had coached some other some other teams and things but that was my real sort of coach first go at coaching at a reasonable level and then i was still playing and things and and obviously while you're still playing and you're playing in a different environment you are you're replenishing your uh or you're, you're topping up your knowledge tank just of a different way of play and different skill sets and different mindsets so it was i was always building um that sort of knowledge and that resource for later on in 2005 i was captain of a club we won the the Dutch Championship for the first time in the club's history. It was a massive, big thing in the in the city, let alone the club. So I was really privileged to be part of that, and I'm glad I was able to, yeah, be part of that um, that team, let alone be captain of their first ever winning team. So so that was great. Once that was once my playing career was finished after that championship, I was offered a position as head coach at, at Royal Dragons in Antwerp, which is 85 k's down the road from from where I lived in Eindhoven and I coached it was a one-year contract my first coaching stint the uh, Royal Dragons only wanted to give me one year because it was a bit of wait and see if you're any good and I also wasn't sure if I was going to remain in Europe for much longer so I agreed to one year and they weren't expecting too much they hadn't really spent much on players or they hadn't really recruited many players um, so they were hoping sort of for a top sort of six finish. At the halfway mark at Winterstop, we were sitting on top of the ladder with, I think, 10 wins and two losses or something like that. Um, and they were thrilled. And I said, I'm in Winterstop when it's freezing cold and snowing there. I always headed back home for summer and went back for the uh, when play resumed. But I told him in that time, I met my lovely partner, Danielle, in that trip. And I went back and then I thought, um, no, I think I want to move back to Australia. And in the end, Royal Dragons got a little bit dirty with me because I was going home. I suspect if we were two wins and 10 losses, they would have given me the arse at halfway anyway. So I guess that's that's the way head coaches and coaches in general um, play out if you're doing if you're getting some results, then they want to keep you. And if not, then they want to move you on. So that was really my first taste of sort of coaching over there. I want to get a, a couple of stories or thoughts on India. You went across uh, in more recent times, the Indian League, um, and you told me a couple of funny stories there with the, uh, with the team. You had a few few owners that liked to get their uh, relatives into the side. Is that correct when you coached in India? What was that like? Yeah, it was interesting. I um, It was a fantastic experience and um, um, – I sort of inherited a list. Um, I didn't participate in the auction to purchase players. That was a German guy, and he was uh, he was elevated to national coach uh, of Germany. So he was no longer able to to coach the Debang Mumbai uh, franchise out of Mumbai. Um, so I inherited a list, and I tried to do some quick research on who was in the playing list, and then I started to look at how much money they were getting paid and what 
who they purchased them for and um, I thought oh based on this these uh, these salaries they must be a pretty good team and things then I looked at their playing record they only won one game per season for the previous three seasons so that didn't give me a, a lot of confidence but I also thought well if I could just get them to win two or three games it looked like I'm doing a terrific job and then um, I might be offered uh, I might be offered a, an extension or something after one year but yeah, with those players, um, the first two weeks, I oh, sorry, first ten days, I went over. I was only the European or the or the foreign players hadn't arrived yet, and I was only working with the local Indian players, and they come from all over India. And when I say all over, I mean from small, tiny villages where sometimes they don't even play on astroturf and things like that. And um, it was real interesting that I'd set up a couple of basic drills and my interpreter by my side and one of the players back at the hotel after one training session told me that the the interpreter was only interpreting about 20% of everything that I was saying and all, <laughs> all these little challenges along the way. Um, but I think that sort of, that's given me great experience in dealing with those things and trying to, it has its own rules um, within the league as well, but trying to um, marry up sort of different cultures in hockey we had some Australians, we had some Dutch, we had Germans, we had a guy from Sweden who plays field hockey in Germany, eight Indians, uh, sorry, we had 12 Indians and eight foreigners in a list of 20. So to try and manage all those people, I, I suppose when you think about it and talking about it now, I probably did draw back on some of Argy's type of things to get the best out of people and uh, making them feel good about themselves and that they're important to the group and they've and they've got a role to play within this team and they're required and all of those types of things which brings out the best in a lot of athletes. Fantastic it's uh, you can talk all day on those things what I might just throw to now is to get your thoughts on a couple of the best players you played uh, with and against who are the ones that stood out say in your Australian career and also overseas, who are the ones you just think uh, once in a generation type players that given you're in the midfield a lot, you would have played against these guys a lot of the time? It's difficult. You play with a lot of good players, but I think um, Mark Mark Hagar was an, uh, a fantastic competitor and goal scorer. I think Craig Davies was a, a good defender, leader and a, um, a great tackler, those types of things. Um, you went pretty well yourself. Wanzi? Um, well, that's, was, yeah, clearly we, we've organised this before the talk. That's why I went with the other guys first. I didn't want you to put your – it was a bit obvious if I put you ranked at number one, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, but, no, it was always um, a good rapport playing alongside yourself. When you played at centre-half and I was in the midfield, I always felt I had – and obviously you play at Camberwell, you play at Victoria, you play in Australia, you obviously have a good connection, but – Obviously, in that type of style of play, that's where a lot of the ball supply comes to, and I, I felt it quite easy to get the ball from you um, when you weren't hogging it yourself. I think Dean Evans was a talented player as well. Rick Charlesworth was a super competitive um, uh, man. Um, he taught me taught me a lot. We what go about back to the eight Olympics, <laughs> and I think you were were you room with him there. Uh, yes, and I might have played it right half alongside him, and and basically my job was to give him the ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, but I, as a young guy coming in, I was in that room as well, so I, I um, um, so I did learn a, a fair bit, a fair bit from Rick, and I've got a fairly, uh, fairly good rapport with Rick. Um, although we're totally different types of people socially and things like that, but I think we have a a, a pretty good rapport, um, and I like I like talking to him 
about hockey. It's a little bit, sometimes a little bit confusing for me with his intellect, but um, he's um, <laughs> but he's very very good to talk to. And what about overseas? Some of the, the players you played oh, against, some of the greats. Obviously, we we yeah. saw a few handy ones from some yeah. of those countries. Yep. So, um, well, I, you know, the one that comes to mind is Shabazz Ahmed, um, and I was lucky enough to play with him at Aranjuswad in Holland as well. Uh, he was an absolutely game game changing uh, maestro. He was unbelievable for Pakistan, um, and that was he was you know all credit goes to him for the success they had through the eighties there and nineties ninety four World Cup. Uh, Taco van der Honnet was an outstanding, technical, skillful type player. He was uh, for Holland. He was a very, very good player. Germany had some uh, some pretty talented players, but in a in a different type of style. Uh, they had they were very um, disciplined in their roles, and as long as they executed those roles, they were good. Stephen Veen was another top player. Toon de Neuer from Holland. Uh, some direct opponents uh, of these guys are of mine. Um, some of the best that I've seen of recent times, um, and and coaching um, Florian Fuchs from Germany, who I coached at the Bang Mumbai, is a terrific bloke. But he is one one talented hockey player. If you saw him walking around on the pitch and um, the way his mannerisms, you you wouldn't think that he was the a high performing athlete at all. But he is such a smart intelligent hockey player and skilled as well. Did I leave anybody out? No, you did very well there. Um, but what I'd also just very quickly finish on, which I think is where some players listening are young, old, whatever, you can get some insights. And there's all different ways we can analyse going about the game. But if you think about what's important for a player, whatever ability they're at, and if I broke it into the physical side, mental, technical, and then I'll finish on part of the technical and penalty corners because it's a Area of the game, a lot of clubs aren't as good as they should be in countries, and you were clearly right in the thick of it for many years. But let's start with the physical. You're a guy who, um, big fellow, um, and had to run in the midfield. So quite a remarkable effort to not only play that sport where it's you know good to be nimble um, it's, and it's good to have strength, but you have to do it for a long, long time. Um, and I, I knew, but not everybody would, how hard you work. So so how did you do that um, to play for so long at such an intense level in the midfield, given your the fact that you were such a big guy. Well, yeah, you're right. I didn't have a natural type of hockey player's physique. I, I you know, I wasn't blessed with speed. Um, that was clear. Um, but when I sort of did get wind up, but I, I could run. I thought, I, I think over the journey that I, I become a smarter player to use my, you know, my energy levels and things like that. I got smarter in about how, how to get the ball, um, where to position myself, how to defend. Um, your decision-making, as you obviously get more experience, becomes clearer so that you can you can read situations and you can react earlier. But training-wise, I just love training. I just always wanted to be an Australian hockey player. That's what it comes down to, and I just wanted to train. When it was time to train, I really, I really was focused and determined to be the fittest and the best and the strongest I could be. When it was... Downtime from hockey, I really like to let my hair down and have a good time. But I had a good sense of timing and when that should be done and when it shouldn't be. You know, I'd like to think now looking back on it, I got that pretty, I think I got that pretty right. There might be a couple of blips on the radar, but I think I got that, uh, I got that pretty right over the journey. And I, I think that was 
um, that was key to the longevity of my, you know, my career, sort of 14, 15 years, whatever it was. Well, I think the uh, the West Aussie system or the AIS over there certainly taught players club level, state level to play and train at intensity. Charles were clearly drove it and he rubbed off on his own teammates. But training at intensity, I still think even at club level is what can separate teams. Um, I've seen it locally. Your girls at Hawthorne, when you coach them, they just had an intensity, a hunger about them that um, it wasn't all about ability and organisation. It was also training with the right attitude that you're actually there for a purpose rather than just going through the motions. And it's... Um, uh, a lot of people don't actually get that or understand that. Um, mentally, you know, again, um, so important to be able to cope, the fact that you have setbacks and the fact that things aren't always easy, the ability to um, deal with that, I think, is, um, again, it's not just an elite for elite players, it's actually for club players as well. What Any any particular things that the club player should be, um, you know, mentally, is it about approaching every session with a goal? Is that part of the mental mental approach? Yeah, I think that I think that is correct, but it's not easy being an elite athlete. It's not easy being a state league one player. So you have to actually know where you want to go and what you want to do with your hockey. From that point, if you say, "Yep, you know, I want to play state league, state league one at Camberwell, or sorry, Premier League at Camberwell," and this is sort of the position, and these are the skills, these are the skill sets I need to, you know, push my way or cement a spot in the team in in that position. I think there's in clubs right around uh, Melbourne, uh, but particularly Camberwell, there's more than enough people around to help you set those small goals and identify areas where you need to get better at. And certainly you need to have those, but it's not just for game day. I think it's every session that you do, whether it be at, um, you know, for some people listening, it might be even school hockey, even though the competition's not not great. You can sometimes, you can still um, practice your focus areas that particular time. And when you go through those, when you reassess those and review those, once you sort of start to get hold of some sort of skills, then you need to challenge yourself for the next bit. And I think it's it's about challenging yourself to get better at, at, at those areas that you identify. But you can't identify 27 areas and expect to spread yourself so thin and cover those. I think you really need to narrow your focus on you know, two or three significant areas that's going to, you know, sort of rapidly improve your game when you pay attention to them, you know, at all training sessions, in games, and then reviewing them. And If I make a, uh, an observation there, you know, what you did in your game, um, and thanks partly, I'm sure, well, largely to the help from the likes of Mike, uh, Mike Craig and Jim Irvine, is as a midfielder, um, you know, they made it clear or helped you um, get the ball more. How do you get the ball more as a midfielder? You talked before about supply and you know, that, that's a critical skill or thing you need to get better at. And you definitely did that. When you first came through, you just get the ball because you were strong and powerful. Um, then you start to get marked by players. You had to work out ways to get the ball. And once you do that, you can just keep moving ahead and get going higher. And I think that's um, that's part of it. Um, can I jump just to, at the moment, some of the technical things um, that you're coaching your, your Victorian players? What are some of the common things? Is it receiving the ball? Is it... Um, you know, from an attacking point of view, maybe defensive, just one or two things that are you think are critical things at the moment for young players coming through, they should be also on the same path. Well, I, I, and it's, it's a fair point about getting the ball and receiving the ball, but I think it's, it's, about, it's still about identifying space and having a plan about what you're going to do once you receive that ball. To be able to do something with it, prior to getting the ball, you need to be connected to where you're going to go and have a contingency plan if that doesn't unfold how you how you think it was how you how you thought it was going to unfold before you got the ball. So 
Um, so your receiving position is really sometimes you need to be able to post up and receive the ball closed. Other times you need to have an awareness around you to be able to receive the ball open, facing your goal and ready to ready to accelerate through a gap or accelerate through an elimination of, a, of an opponent to create a numbers advantage. But certainly the, the awareness, the pre-planning and the pre-scanning prior to getting the ball is still relevant today. I think that our ability to play the ball in the air, so you'll hear 3D skills, but certainly aerial play, um, not only throwing just a big bomb out of defence, but actually a pass in the air, um, but also on the other end of that, receiving the ball in a way where you can make your your next action. So bringing the ball to ground in a position ready to play the next pass um, or run or receive it in a way where you can manipulate the opposition. I think that's that's an important part of the game. The first part is even probably more important these days. There's not that many teams in Melbourne playing uh, a zonal type defence at the moment, but throughout international hockey um other other states, those types of things, um, zonal zonal type defence, whether it's a a zonal full press or whether it's a half court zonal type defence, actually the opposition encourage you encourage you to, to receive the ball, so they want you to receive it and then take it off you and form a counter from there because if you're in possession of the ball, the, the defence is more spread, so you can counter quite uh, quite quickly. So I think that the receiving skills, the preparation and the connection, uh, prior connections are, are, are vital in that form of hockey as well or that structured hockey. All right. Well, just technically the last one I want to just touch on quickly is penalty corners. Um, yeah, you're obviously with a hitter for a long time for Australia, but you get involved in everything. So what are you of the one or two key things that teams could get a better conversion rate with their penalty corners? Well, the speed of the – you'll notice, you know, most most teams try to have a drag flicker and, of course, you need more than one. And it also helps if those drag flickers are on different lines on the pitch, striker, midfielder and defender. As it turns out, most most drag flickers play at the back, but it's a, it's a real advantage if you can have one on another line just for rotation purposes. It just uh, allows you to have more on the park. The actual speed of the push-out – is we found for the Victorian Vikings uh, a consider a, a significant difference in our success rate compared to if we had someone slower. So with Russell Ford pushing out, he's consistently 85 kilometres an hour to the top. So obviously pushing out that speed doesn't give the runner out enough time to actually run out and smother the ball with their with their body line so it gives you more of the goal to shoot at um so that's why we were quite successful when we had chris sorello flicking at the top and rusty was pushing out our success rate with those two on of course the trapping is is critical as well um but it's a closed skill so there's no reason why uh, you shouldn't be able to trap you know nine out of ten in that area but for the flicker the footwork the footwork is important because you can also injure yourself a little bit as well um, if you don't have the correct technique. And there's plenty of plenty of footage online on YouTube and things. The best man to watch is the is a Dutchman called Toon Seepman. He's sort of the the drag flicking specialist coach to the stars. Any big name drag flicker you've heard of in the last sort of ten years have all sort of come through him all different countries. Uh, he doesn't travel out of Holland. The athletes have to go to him uh, in a little little town in uh, Vught in, uh, in the south of Holland. But any anything on online with him coaching will give you a, a really good grounding in drag flicking. 
Look, it's been uh, wonderful to cover so many different areas. Um, it's been a wealth of you know, interesting stories, current modern-day hockey tips, as well as hearing some of the, the stories of a career that is second to none. And, uh, you know, I think the club still remains incredibly proud um, of your achievements, proud that you can still come into the club as a, as a member and um, be warmly welcome. So we thank you tonight, Jay. Um, I thank you for the number of times you saved me in bars. But more importantly, we thank you tonight for um, contribution. been fantastic to have you on as a guest, and I'm sure it'll be really well received. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Wani. It's um, uh, yeah, really, really glad I could be part of this uh, for this uh, podcast for the club, um, and no doubt, uh, hopefully, play resumes at some time this year, and um, I'll see everyone down there, down at uh, Matlock Park. It's a great venue.